Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Welcome here. This is awesome. So we're going to do a a four-part series, and I'm on holidays uh, uh, starting this next week, so Tom's going to do the next couple, but uh, we're doing a four-part series during this family series on uh, unsung heroes. And we're going to look at uh, four women in the Bible uh, who were heroes, but they're unsung heroes because they're not famous. I mean, we all know the famous characters of the Bible, right? We know David, and we know Moses, and we know Peter and Paul and, and Joseph and all these. Those are the big heroes of the Bible, and I've basically preached message series on each of them, okay? But in this series, we're looking at the overlook. We're looking at the regular little people who made a difference through their godliness, Okay, and so, and we're actually, and we're looking at women too, because that's often overlooked in the Bible, but we have a great story. I've got a great story for you in the Bible today, and it's the story of Abigail, and in this story, the men are most certainly the bad guys, and Abigail is, is definitely the hero in this story, okay? So we're going we're gonna to spend our time this message in 1 Samuel chapter 25, and, uh, and it starts out this way, Okay. There was a wealthy man from Maon, okay, who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. This man's name was Nabal. So there's going to be three main characters in this story. The first character's name is Nabal, okay? And he's got 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Now, why would the Bible tell us how many sheep and goats he has? Because in those days, they didn't have money like we do. They didn't have $20 bills. They didn't have $100 bills. They didn't have credit cards. They had none of that. And so uh, when you wanted to measure a person's wealth, one of the ways you could measure wealth was how many animals did this person own, okay? Because animals are a form of wealth because you can get clothes from their fur and wool. You can get meat from their dead bodies, and you can get milk from them, right? So uh, if you have lots of animals, you're wealthy. So Nabal is the first character in our story, and Nabal is a very wealthy man because he's got lots and lots of sheep and lots and lots of goats. So we keep reading, and his wife, Abigail, now... She... Wowzers. Uh, his wife, Abigail, second character of the story, was a sensible and beautiful woman. But Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was crude and mean in all his dealings, okay? So that's not something you want to have written about you in the Bible. Nabal was a wealthy man, okay? He was very successful in business, but he was a terrible person. He was successful in business, but he was a terrible, terrible person, all right? And so we keep reading verse 4. When David, there's our third character, so our three characters in this story are going to be David and Nabal and Abigail, When David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent 10 of his young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal. Verse 6, peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. I am told that it is sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed them, and nothing was ever stolen from them. Ask your men, and they will tell you this is true. So what is David doing here? He sends a message to this Nabal. And the message starts off with a list of, first of all, how wonderful Nabal is, even though we know he is not Nabal, he is not wonderful. But David says, you know, peace and prosperity to you. And then David has a list of all the good things he's done for Nabal. 
hey, I took care of your shepherds and, and you can ask them and we protected them and nothing was ever stolen from you and yada, yada, yada. Now, why do you think David is saying all these nice things? Those of you who are parents here today, when, you're, when a child meets you at the door and begins with a list of how wonderful you are and all the good things they've done that day, what are they about to do? Okay? I mean, they're buttering you up, and it's not just for the sake of making you feel better. They are about to ask you something. Isn't that true? Right? Oh, Dad, you're so handsome. You're so wonderful. You're such an amazing person. And I did all these things today in the house without Mom asking me. And can you please buy me a... Can I please watch an extra... Right? So David is doing the same thing. Look at what, I, look what he says next. So would you be kind to us, he says. Next statement. Since we have come at a time of celebration. It's a holiday. It's, like, it, it's kind of like Christmas time. Imagine it's Christmas time. It's not Christmas time. Didn't have Christmas time before Jesus. But it's a holiday like that. So would you be kind to us? So first he butters them up. Oh, you're a wonderful person. And I did lots of nice things for you. So would you be kind to us at this holiday time? Please share any provisions you might have on hand with us and with your friend David. So he says, uh, it's holiday time. Would you share food with us? Now, first of all, I mean, that, I mean, none of us here probably would just show up at someone's house and ask them for food. Am I right? Like, that would be a little odd in our culture. Obviously, it's a little different in those days. But you have to understand, this is even a bigger deal than that. Do you know how many men are in David's little army? 600. He's got 600 men, and then that doesn't include, they have wives and children. He sends messengers to Nabal, and he's asking, it's holiday time, do you have enough food to spare for like a thousand people? Can you imagine someone showing up at your, you know, at your family dinner on Christmas Eve and saying, got extra food? I mean, I'd probably just laugh. My wife would probably faint, right? Like... (laughs) For a thousand people, like you couldn't give me a heads up, right? Can you spare? So this is not a small thing David's asking, right? He's asking a very big thing. Can you feed a small town is what he's asking of Nabal. Now you say, why would David even have the nerve to ask a question like this of Nabal? And one of the things you have to understand, first of all, that area where David is in the tribe of Judah is a desert. Like, and I mean a desert. Any of you who's ever been to Israel... When you're in the hills of Judah, it is a wilderness. And David's on the run from King Saul, right? So he actually needs the people of Judah to help him out in order to survive. And you have to remember that because Israel was broken up into tribes, a tribe is like a big extended family. So essentially, the, the reason David was able to survive all those years while, Samuel, or while Saul was chasing him was because the tribe of Judah was helping him out all along. And so when David asks this question, he has a little bit of an expectation because this is like family. This is extended family. And he's expecting that the tribe of Judah wants to help him and will help him. So, but let's see what happens next now. So David has just made a really big ask. Okay? So let's see what happens next. Verse 9. David's young men gave this message to Nabal in David's name, and they waited for a reply. Now let's see what Nabal is going to reply. Who is this fellow David, Nabal sneered to the young men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? See, he knows who David is. He knows David's dad. He knows all this. 
There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to a band of outlaws who comes from who knows where? Is that a good answer or is that a bad answer? Okay, that's a bad answer. Now, now first of all, let's just say this. Uh, is it within Nabal's right to refuse to, to feed David? I mean, it, it's not a very generous thing to do. But, I mean, it's Nabal's food. I mean, if he says no, fine. It's not a generous thing to do, but it's not a wicked thing to do. But what Nabal does here is so much more than say no. He actually says no, but he says it with an insult. He actually goes out of his way to insult David, which is not good, okay? So let's keep going. What happens next? So David's young men returned and told him what Nabal had said. Now, what is David going to do in response? And let's see what his first response is. And we're going to get a little bit of a look at David's heart. And David says, get your swords. Right away to the swords. By the way, would you like to see a sword? This is actually, someone brought this for me today. Sarah Harder. And this is nothing like what David would actually have had, really. But can you imagine running around with one of these? No wonder they wanted to kill each other. I mean, it's just kind of, isn't that kind of cool? <laughs> like, wow, you do want to swing it at someone. It's just something about the... <laughs> okay, but that's David's first... Okay, someone insults him, and his first reaction is, get him out, let's get him, right? Okay, now, what Nabal did was not good, is David's response good? I heard someone say yes. That's the wrong answer. I, thank you for trying. Thank you for trying. But it's the wrong answer. Okay? Someone insults you. You don't pull out your sword and go on a rampage. Okay? And this brings up a really important point. I want to just park here for a couple of minutes. This brings up a really, really important point that a lot of people don't get when they read their Bibles. And here's the important point. The good guys in Scripture, the, the Bible does not tell us fairy tales and try to make people look good. The Bible just tells us what happened. The good people in the Bible don't always do the right thing. And that's important for you to know. You want to know why that's important? Sometimes people read the Bible and they say, how come God likes all this killing? How come God likes it when David marries many wives? How come God likes it when David goes and kills people? Do you know that just because the good guys do something in the Bible does not mean that God likes it? In fact, King David is a perfect example. He's one of the good guys in the Bible, but he does lots of terrible things that God actually hates. And that brings up a really good important point because if you, if you, and this is a point that's going to run through all four of these messages this month, a really, really important point. There, there is actually only one hero in Scripture. And you want to know who that hero is? Jesus. I was actually reading in my devotions just this, this past couple of weeks, we've actually been reading about the story of David in our devotions. A bunch of us pastors, we have a cell group together, and we hold each other accountable every Tuesday morning early, and we've been reading through First and Second Samuel together in our devotions as pastors, and so we've been reading this whole story of David. And I've had now, over the last couple of weeks, I've had a few devotions where literally I'm reading in my devotions about King David, and usually King David is the one that all of us Christians go, he's my favorite character, and I'm reading it, and I'm going... I'm actually disgusted. Like, it's actually gross. Some of the things David does 
are actually gross. And one day I was praying to God and I said, this is gross. How can I, how can I cheer for this? And you know what the Lord reminded me of right away? He's like, I don't like it either because I was falling into this trap that because it's David, God must like it. No, you know what God reminded me of? If you want to see what God likes, don't look at David, go look at who? Jesus. And what did Jesus teach us to do when someone insults us? Not pull out your swords. Let's just go look at it. Let's briefly go and look at Jesus because he's the real hero here, okay? Here's what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter five. Jesus says this, starting in verse 38, You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, so now Jesus gives us a teaching, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, if they insult you, offer the other cheek also. You know what Jesus says? When someone does something evil to you, you don't respond evil for evil. That's what Jesus says. That's not what David says. That's what Jesus says. Now look at what Jesus says next, verse 43. You have heard that the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies. Jesus actually tells us to love our enemies and pray for people who persecute us. And then look what he says lastly here in this verse, verse 45. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Do you want to act like a child of God? If you want to act like a child of God, you want to know what the big key is? The big key is love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When people do evil to you, do good back to them and you will be acting like God in heaven. Is that not amazing? Now, when you read in the Old Testament disturbing stories, don't read in those stories, oh, God's such a terrible God. Go and look at Jesus, and then you'll realize who God really is. And then you say, well, why did God put up with all this stuff in the Old Testament? I'll tell you why. Because he's so merciful. I mean, it makes me really happy to know that God could put up with David when I see some of the terrible things that David did, and then I know that God will also put up with me. doesn't mean he likes what David did. It means he's going to be merciful to me. Isn't that good? Now, I want to show you Jesus in action. If you think, some people think, being loving is being weak, Do you think Jesus is weak? Jesus is the strongest person who ever lived. And I want to show you what he did under stress. Look at this, Luke chapter 22. This is at the crucifixion. The guards in charge of Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and said, prophesy to us, who hit you that time? And they hurled all sorts of terrible insults at at him. So they blindfolded Jesus. They had a bunch of guys in a room. They blindfolded him. Then they would walk up to him and punch him and spit at him, and insult him. And he had the strength to take each one of those guys and crush them like an ant. Yet he didn't. He stood there and took it. And the very next chapter, we read this. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. That's true strength. It's easy to get mad at someone when they get mad at you. It's easy to insult someone when they insult you. But true strength that models Jesus, and this is not a message just for children. This is most of all a message for us adults. True strength is to absorb someone else's evil and anger and respond with good. And that's what Jesus models for us, and that's what Jesus wants us to do. So let's go back to David, who's running around with a sword. He gets one insult, and he wants to kill everybody. 
okay? He is every bit as bad as Nabal in this story, every bit as bad, okay? Don't read this story as Nabal's really bad, and then, well, David's a little out of control. David is every single bit as wicked and evil as Nabal in this story, okay? So now in this story, we need a hero. We need someone who's going to be like Jesus in this story. And thankfully, there's a woman on the scene, right, ladies? Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail, that's Nabal's wife, and told her, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed insults at them. These men have been very good to us, and we never suffered any harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. You need to know this and figure out what to do, for there is going to be trouble for our master and his whole family. He's so ill-tempered that no one could even talk to him. So just imagine the state these servants are in, okay? Okay? On the one hand, you've got Nabal, who won't listen to reason, who just insulted a man who's got a small army at his disposal. Like, stupid, 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 okay? And kids, if your parents say that's a bad word, don't use it, okay? I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said it, all right? But anyway, Nabal, dumb. Okay, not good. Now, on the other hand, you've got David, this raging, murderous lunatic, okay? So you've got literally, and they're going, we're caught. This guy won't listen to reason, and this guy's going to kill us all, okay? So you've got Abigail literally caught between two idiots. What's she going to do, right? Literally in this story, you can't, I mean, this is, this is neither of these men are acting in a way that is defensible, Okay? So what's she going to do? How is she going to get out of this one? How is she going to display wisdom? How is she going to be a hero in this story? Well, Abigail wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 uh, fig cakes. By the way, whenever I read fig cakes in that story, I think date cake, okay? (laughs) Um, Because my wife's date cake is literally probably one of the best things in the world, okay? And to those of you ladies who kind of take that as a challenge, I actually welcome that challenge. I welcome you to bake me some date cake that you, that you would like me to try that would be better than my wife's, okay? So just, that's just an ongoing thing now the next few months. Feel free to participate. Um, but anyway, what, what, is, what is Abigail doing here? Well, first of all, she's very wise because she knows that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, right? So how are we going to get these? You got two grumpy men. What are we going to do to settle them down to start? Well, let's, you know, let's make them some good food, all right? So that's a good first start. What's she going to do next, all right? She packed them on donkeys and said to her servants, go on ahead, I will follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal what she was doing. As she was riding her donkey into a mountain ravine, she saw David and his men coming toward her. David, next verse, had just been saying, a lot of good it did to help this fellow, We protected his flocks in the wilderness, and nothing he owned was lost or stolen. But he has repaid me evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if even one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. Okay, so, wow. (laughs) Not good. Verse 23. So here he is in a murderous rage. How is Abigail going to approach this situation? And this is where we're going to see, even though this is happening a thousand years before Jesus, You are going to see Jesus' spirit at work in this woman, and you're going to see Jesus' teaching at work in this woman, and it is brilliant. When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, 
I accept all blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He is a fool, just as his name suggests, but I never even saw the young men you sent. Now, two things. Well, I mean, she does throw her husband under, under the bus, but it's really not throwing him under the bus. It's just telling the truth, okay? Um, it, it really is, okay? But I want you to notice, first of all, two things. Before we talk about what she is doing here in this interaction, I want you to see what she isn't doing. I want you to notice the first thing that she is not doing is she does not go on the attack. She does not run out hysterically to David and yell, like, what are you thinking? Are you crazy? You're going to kill us all over this? Now, if she did say those things to David, they wouldn't be wrong things to say. They actually would be true. Like, what are you thinking, David? But that isn't what she does. She doesn't start by screaming the truth at him. What, what, what are you thinking? You're going to kill us all? She doesn't start with an attack. I want you to also notice that she does not start with any defensiveness. There's no defensiveness. She doesn't go up to David and go, David, come on. Like, it's just a little insult. It's just a few words. It's not that big of a deal. David, why would you kill the rest? of It's just Nabal. It's not the rest of us that are involved. Why are you going to kill? She doesn't get defensive. She doesn't try to explain it away. She doesn't say, David, 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 don't. Okay, that insult. Yes, Nabal had a bit too much to drink. He got up, you know, wrong side of bed. There's no defensiveness. There's no explaining it away. And there's no attacking. Okay, that's the first thing. None of those things happen. By the way, those are the things that if you're a human being, that is your default is to do one of those things. That's, that's all of our default here. To go in a situation like this, some of us will go in defensive and try and explain our actions. Some of us will go in and attack and try and attack the other person's actions. Abigail says no to both of those human impulses. She does something different. She starts by taking responsibility. Look at that uh, fourth line from the bottom there. I accept all blame in this matter. Now, she's not taking, she's not telling a lie. She, she acknowledges that it's Nabal's fault. But as Nabal's wife, what the first thing she does is she takes responsibility for the situation and she says, what we did, what happened here was not right. That's the first thing she does to David. First thing, no defending, no attacking, just saying something wrong was done to you. I admit that that is true. By the way, when you take responsibility, when that's your first action is to take responsibility in a conversation, do you know that it's very hard to stay mad at a person who's taking responsibility? You ever had that happen? You go into an interaction wanting to fight with someone, and the first thing they do is they say, you're right, what I did was wrong, or you're right, what happened here was wrong, and they take responsibility. It's pretty hard to keep yelling, isn't it? Pretty hard to stay mad when they just take responsibility and say, you're right, that, that was wrong, you were insulted, that's wrong, I take responsibility. That is beautiful. Okay. Now I know all the excuses why we don't do that. One of the excuses why we don't do that is we think to ourselves, I'm not going to take responsibility for what I did because they're not taking responsibility for what they did. First of all, it's not on your yard, whether they end up doing right or wrong anyway. Your responsibility is not whether or not they're going to do right in this conversation. Your responsibility is whether or not you're going to do right. Notice, Abigail doesn't wait for David to become reasonable before she accepts responsibility. If she's going to wait that long, they're all going to be dead. Regardless of whether David's going to do the right thing, and Abigail has no assurances he will do the right thing, 
She just starts and does the right thing. She takes responsibility. Another excuse why people don't take responsibility is they say, yeah, but so-and-so is overreacting. Like, uh, what I did was just small, and what they're doing is so big. Why would I take responsibility? They're way over... Notice again here, David is also overreacting. I mean, an insult shouldn't lead to murder. Insults should not lead to small-scale warfare, okay? But she doesn't worry about, David, what you're doing is too much. She just acknowledges he has a reason to be upset he's been insulted. He doesn't have a reason to kill, but he has a reason to be upset, and I take responsibility for that. That is a very Jesus mindset. Now, I want you to notice the second thing she does here, and this one is completely counterintuitive to our human pride. There are many of us here that might even almost revolt against this next point. I want you to notice what she does her posture, when she comes into this, this uh, confrontation, the first thing she does is she bows low. Now, I'm not talking about going into all of our arguments or disagreements with people and having to physically bow low, but what her outer posture is showing us is what her inner posture is. In her inner posture, she is not coming into this looking to win. She is not looking to come into this to fight. Any interaction you have with people where you go in to fight or where you go in to win, your posture, whether you're consciously thinking of it or not, it will come out in your posture and you will 99% of the time get exactly what you went in looking for. If you, go into a, an, if you go into a situation with your spouse or with your boss or with your children and you're already upset and you're expecting a fight, you will 99% of the time get exactly what you're expecting and that is a fight. Abigail is going into a situation that has fight written all over it, but she doesn't go in looking for a fight. She goes in with a humble servant posture. She's ready to take responsibility and she's not looking to win. Do you know that something physiological, there's actually, your brain has these things called mirror neurons. So when another person gets angry, your brain or when another person gets amped up, your brain will want to go back and forth. This is why you can go from zero to 100 so quick. Someone comes in and they're upset, and you can also just be upset too, right? Like that. It happens with your kids all the time. Isn't that true? Your kids, you're just having a wonderful day, and all of a sudden your kids are like, like this, and you just go like this, like almost immediately. You just mirrored them. Now, technically, God made you as a parent to be mature enough to not give back to your children just what they give to you but many of us fail to attain to that level of maturity so often, right? So we usually just sink to their level. But actually, Abigail shows us we actually need to rise above. We actually need to rise above. When the other person is looking for a fight, is looking for conflict, and we can actually go in and have a humble posture, you can actually change a situation. This is not weak. See, we're afraid, especially us men, are afraid of being weak. And it takes real strength. It takes real strength to be strong enough to go into conflict situations and to have a posture of bowing low. By the way, I'm going to give you one more thing on this. Parents, take advantage of this truth. Okay, and I hate to give away parenting secrets when all of our kids are here. But nonetheless, I will do so. Okay, cover your children's ears. If you're not convinced, you're going to listen to what I'm about to say. This I, I wish I had learned this earlier, and I don't nearly do it often enough, but it can be even just to think this way. 
But if one of your kids is really overwhelmed and really upset about something, as parents, what we generally tend to do is we want to lecture. Isn't that true? My child is upset. My child is grumpy. What they need right now is a lecture. Start being thankful. Just stop complaining already and be happy, right? And that's very helpful. When your spouse does that to you and you're not having a good day and they just tell you, be happy, doesn't it just make you feel good? <laughs> oh, I, oh, why didn't you tell me that earlier? I just feel so great. <laughs> it's very helpful to tell your kids what to feel. Very, just keep doing that, right? So anyway, we lecture them and then we wonder why they go inside and why they get upset. But you want to know one of the most fascinating things you can do that will feel exactly the opposite of what you should do and and really that's probably a good sign that it, it's maybe something you should try in some situations, is if you sit down on the floor, if you separate out a kid who's really overwhelmed, take them off in a room together. No, don't just send them off, but go off with them together. Sit down on the floor and just see how an entire interaction changes when you talk to your kid from the floor as to being above them. You say, what? That feels wrong. Just, just try it. Unless you love the results you're getting, then just keep going, okay? Sit on the floor and talk to them from the floor. Actually, sit on the floor and listen to them first. Listen to them for a bit. And you'll be amazed. It is very hard to continue being angry when someone sits down. In fact, not only will it be hard for them, it's actually very hard for you to remain angry because something about your posture actually changes the way you feel, just like we see here with Abigail. And then you say, oh, are you saying I can't discipline my kid because we equate discipline with being over top of our kids? Uh, actually, if you're a parent who's confident enough in your authority as a parent, uh, and you sit down on the floor and you listen to them for a while, you'll often find that at a certain point, if you're doing it right, they will want to sit down with you too. And it's pretty hard to fight with someone when you're both sitting side by side. And now when, you get, when both of you are in a place where you're not way overwhelmed, now you can get to actual discipline that might actually go somewhere that can be received and given in a proper spirit because you went in with a proper posture, not looking to fight, but looking to listen. It's actually the opposite of how we generally view how our interactions should go. And the Bible talks about this a lot, Proverbs 15, verse 1. A gentle answer deflects anger, but harsh words make tempers flare. And if you think gentleness and soft speech are weak, Proverbs 25, verse 15 says this, patience can persuade a prince and soft speech can break bones. In other words, gentle words can break through barriers and break through hard hearts like harsh words can never accomplish. Harsh words cause people to put up more boundaries. Gentle words take down boundaries and actually get far more accomplished. Well, let's go back to David and Abigail's story. Abigail goes in and does exactly opposite of what most of us would naturally do. She goes in with a humble posture. She takes responsibility. She uses gentle words. And let's look what happens to David, who's in a murderous, uh, you know, frame of mind. Verse 32, David replied to Abigail, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent, me, sent you to meet me today. It's like magic. 30 seconds ago, he's, he's contemplating killing everyone in, in, on, the, on the farm, so to speak. And within one interaction like this, his entire frame of mind has changed. He's worshiping God. And he sees that what he was about to do is wrong. He repents. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder. It is literally like magic. Whoa, one minute, and then one beautiful Christ-like interaction. 
completely different. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. Then David accepted her present and told her, return home in peace. I have heard what you said. We will not kill your husband. Can you imagine if we would bring humility, listening, and empathy into all of our actions? Does not mean you don't stand for truth? You say, does this mean I can't tell people the truth? Does this mean I can't tell people hard things? Oh, no, no. You can still tell the truth. You can say hard things. But first, you're going to listen. First, you're going to go in humble, and you're going to actually desire to help the person with your hard words. And once they've come to a place where you can give it to them, you're going to administer those words in a gracious and gentle way. And then you will be bringing Jesus into all of your interactions with people. I have people wonder sometimes, how do I bring Jesus into everything I do? Act like Jesus. What Abigail did here with David was actually bring the spirit of Jesus into that place and bring repentance and life where there was about to be death. You can bring the spirit of Jesus and life into your marriage, into your relationship with your children, into your relationship with your boss and your coworkers, if you bring gentleness and humility and listening first into your interactions with other human beings. We would make Jesus look a lot more attractive if we could, as a Christian body, act like Abigail more often. So here's, a, here's, a, here's three things to remember before reacting in anger or defensiveness. And by the way, I bet you most of us have an opportunity to be defensive or go on the attack probably almost every day, a couple of times a week in our interactions with children, coworkers, and stuff like that. So next time, before reacting in anger or defensiveness, I want you only to remember one word, stop. Stop. That's what you've always done. So don't do what you've always done. Before you, blah, defensiveness, blah, attack, blah, stop. Three things. First, listen. I don't want to listen. They're, blah, everything in me doesn't want to listen. They're wrong. They're, I'm right. They're wrong. No, 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 no. I know. I know you feel all those things. And your feelings have been leading you astray for much of your life. First, listen. Just listen. Because even if they are overreacting, even if they are wrong, there is a person in there who has feelings about something. Listen for those feelings. Listen for what's going on in that person. If you did something that set that off, even if they're overreacting, take responsibility for whatever you did, big or small. First, first listen, then take responsibility. Lastly, now, when you have to bring truth in or whatever it is that you need to say to stand up for, choose gentle words. Choose gentle words. Now, here's the thing. If we could learn to get good at this right here, we would transform ourselves and the people around us. We would transform our workplaces. We would transform this church. We would transform this community. If, if we applied this, filled with the Holy Spirit's love, we would transform people. The thing is, this is really hard to do. And guess what I know about things that are really hard to do? You can't do them if you don't practice. I've never met anyone who is good at music or, or a sport or anything that didn't have to practice that thing over and over and over and over again in order to get good at it. If you think you're going to get good at this, this is way harder than playing the piano. This is way harder than being good at volleyball. This here 
is really difficult. If you want to get good at this, you're actually going to have to practice. So that's why I'm going to finish this message with a challenge for this month. I'm calling it the Abigail Challenge for August. Okay, I'm calling it the Abigail Challenge. Now, and the reason I'm calling it the Abigail Challenge is I know we can all listen to this message and agree with it. We can all go home from this message and say, yeah, that Abigail was amazing. That was a good message. I really liked that about listening first. and da-da-da. That, that was really, really good. And then go home and it's gone in a day or two days. And on judgment day, there is no reward for God where God says to you, hey, way to listen to that message. You liked it. Way to go. No reward for that. There is only reward for this, not for knowing it, but for doing it. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. So you're going to have to have a practice plan. So my challenge to you is the Abigail challenge, which is take five minutes every day. And I would do it during during your devotions. But take five minutes every day and just do this simple exercise. All you do is you review the day before and the words that came out of your mouth. At work, with your spouse, and with your kids. Just five minutes. Five minutes a day. Go over the day before. Check. Was I defensive at any point? Where I defended? I was just defending myself rather than really listening. Did I attack? Did I really listen to my kids or to my employees or whatever it is? Did I really listen to them and others before lecturing and arguing? Or did I go straight to lecturing and arguing? Just do that discipline five minutes a day and try that for an entire month. And the act of reviewing this every single day is going to start to bring it to your mind in the moment. Because at first, you'll just keep stumbling, but then you'll remind yourself the next day and repent. And you'll go back. And just the act of taking five minutes a day to practice this will bring it more and more into your mind that you can begin to start to build a little bit of a habit and ultimately to become more Christ-like. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes and let's pray to Jesus, the hero of the Bible, to ask him to help us to be more like him. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for forgiving us. If you can forgive a man like David, you can forgive any of us. Oh, I love that. There's no one here in this room that's done worse things than David. And if you could forgive him of all that, thank you that you forgive us. Now, Lord, help us to be good with our mouths. We are really good at being defensive. We are really good at going on the attack. We are not always really good at listening, at being gentle, and at taking responsibility. None of us is perfect. I am far from it. Help us in our imperfections to get better at this this month. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.